Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Age-Related Macular Degeneration, or AMD, is the leading cause of adult vision loss in the U.S. It affects 1 in 14 over the age of 40. When caught early, there is time to take corrective action. Ask your eye doctor to test your dark adaptation speed using the Adapt DX Pro from Maculogics. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Len Mesner. In this episode, Dr. Mesner discusses ocular complications of traumatic brain injury and the newest research used in concussion diagnosis and rehabilitation. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. You talked about the SCN. You know, people don't realize that there's two pathways. There's the eyesight pathway, and then there's this pathway where it's involved in circadian rhythm. I mean, yeah. that's really fascinating. Yeah, and, and it, it's probably the latter that is that is that is more tied into the, the, the head pain uh, and, and the and the photophobia. The, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of, I mean, there's, there's, I'll put it to you this way, up until about a year ago, certainly the, the research was teeming. Um, COVID changed our lives. Uh, that, 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 of course, is, you know, that, that is, you know, that, that, that is an overwhelmingly obvious uh, statement. But, um, you know, as a result of that, you know, some of the research related to con concussion was sort of put off to the side. One of the reasons is there just wasn't that much physical activity there. You know, as far as a lot of the sports, team sports, collision sports, contact sports, you know, there, there, there just wasn't a lot of activity. But, you know, get, getting back to looking at vision, visual pathways, um, you know, it, it is a matter of, you know, does it make sense scientifically? And then can you prove it through clinical trials? You know, we, we touched on the, this, this prefrontal vulnerability or the frontal vulnerability of the brain uh, in the setting of concussion and, and specifically, you know, an area of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Um, but in addition to this being associated with memory, executive function, and some of those things that we talked about going awry with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, it, it is also the seat of controlling for eye movements, or at least many eye movements, and, and, and particularly saccades, the ability of the eye to move from one target to another and to do so quickly and to do it rapidly. Um, you know, that, that's what stimulated a lot of our interest in looking at psychotic testing as a means of sideline testing for concussion. Uh, there was a paper uh, that was published in Brain by Heitner and colleagues in, in 2009, uh, where they looked at rugby players with post-concussion syndrome. And they found that saccadic abnormalities uh, were one of the more reliable indicators of symptomatology associated with post-concussion syndrome, candidly being a more reliable indicator than neurocognitive domains, which historically have always been thought to be the holy grail as it relates to you know, gauging severity or gauging whether or not an individual has a concussion. So, so that's what stimulated a lot of our interest in, you know, you know, as, as eye care providers, you know, we do know a lot about saccades. We, we know, you know, we, we know how to test them and, and, and you know, the evolution of, of, of tests like the King Devic test for rapid number naming, uh, you know, which, which has been proven uh, to, to be a, a quite, a, quite a reliable indicator uh, of concussion and, and can be used as a sideline test. So that really gets to this, the root of the issue from the standpoint of this frontal vulnerability and the potential impact on eye movements, and then being able to use that constructively as, as a method of screening for concussion. Well, I want to get into that in a little bit more detail, but first, about 70% of people who have concussions 
they have some kind of uh, uh, ocular motor or uh, binocular vision problem. The yeah. most common being accommodation. Explain what co accommodation is and what the problem is that could be used as, as what happens to a concussed patient and how it affects their accommodation. And can we use accommodation as possibly as part of a diagnostic panel? Yeah, that's a great point in that, yes, accommodative disorders are much more common among individuals that are concussed as opposed to those that are not concussed. Uh, and as you alluded to, accommodation is simply the ability to focus on a near target. When we, when we look at a near target, the eyes pull in, they converge, and then the lens changes shape in the eye so as to focus on, on that near target. And, that, and those neural pathways that are responsible for that change in the lens size and shape, allowing for near focusing, uh, is something that is abnormal in upwards of oh, maybe 40% of individuals with uh, concussion. Um, the, in, in, many, in many cases, it clears spontaneously. Um, but in addition to accommodative disorders, uh, the inability to turn the eyes in or convergence insufficiency also is found, this is something that's found much more common among individuals who are concussed as compared to control groups. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, the ability to move the eyes from one point to another rapidly and accurately, uh, that, that's psychotic dysfunction. So I would say that those are the big three in the setting of concussion and related to vision, visual motor abnormalities, problems with focusing, problems turning the eyes in, and problems allowing the eyes to rapidly move from one target to another. Let's talk about trouble with turning the eyes in, convergence and sufficiency. Yeah. And now, how does that relate to midbrain problems? Yeah. There, there, it, it's a, I guess the simplest way of stating that is that, as I mentioned before, all parts of the brain are affected with concussion. And when we think about vision and we think about visual, ab, visual motor abnormalities and specifically vergence abnormalities, the, the ability of the eyes to, to turn in and, 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 and lock in on an object, you know, much of this is within the domain of the brainstem and specifically within the midbrain. So for, from that standpoint, um, it, it certainly makes sense. It, it makes sense from a neurologic standpoint that this part of the brain and, and, and the way that this part of the brain subserves the ability of the eyes to coordinate their movements is that it is impacted to a high degree in the setting of concussion. And if it affects the midbrain, are pupils involved in it? Can it be correlated? With That's a good point. Yes and no. How's that for an ambiguous answer? Um, I, I know that, you know, as it relates to pupillary responses and pupillary abnormalities, let me, let, let me flip that around first of all. If one were to test pupils with a, with a standard pen light on the sideline of an individual who has been concussed, you would expect a normal pupillary response. If you had a fixed and dilated pupil, that's 911. That's an individual who is bleeding into their brain. That is an individual with tentorial herniation. And they're going to die unless acted upon immediately. But as it relates to just standard, you know, looking for the expected pupillary response, that pretty much is going to appear normal for individuals that are concussed. However, with very sophisticated pupillary uh, measurement systems, pupils are indeed affected in the setting of concussion. And that's a really fascinating area of research is to how do you capture that? How do you measure it? And then how can you apply that to the, you know, for instance, a standard protocol in the evaluation of an individual who is suspected of having sustained a concussion. Conan Medical makes eye kinetics, which is this pupil test. And it seems to be quite sensitive. And I actually have it in my office and I had a number of patients who were abnormal, everything else being normal other than the fact that they've had head trauma. Yeah. 
I, I think that I think that's very interesting information. Um, again, I, 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 it's, I would say, you know, it's, it's a very hot area of research, you know, and I think it's a matter of looking at, you know, you know, you know, is there an anatomical basis for this? Certainly there is. Um, I, I think is it'll be interesting to see what, you know, what the science, what, what future research shows in that area. Now let's get into saccades. This is something you've done a lot of work in. Talk about rugby players and concussions, that study where it related to a decrease in saccadic eye movement. And what is a saccade and the different forms of saccades? Of course, I, I'm very interested in predictive saccades because my son is a baseball player. Yeah. Well, it, uh, a saccade very simply is the ability to quickly and accurately move the eyes from one point to another. And as I mentioned to you before, the seat of saccadic processing essentially resides or begins within the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, part of the brain that is, you know, that, that tends to be more susceptible to damage in the setting of concussion. And as you mentioned, uh, there are many different types of uh, saccades, predictive saccades, anti-saccades, and, and, and the list goes on. But I think the important thing to, to know is that in order for saccades to be working properly, the brain needs to be operating at peak performance. And it doesn't take an awful lot in order to knock the brain off axis so as to result in abnormalities of saccadic function. So, you know, that, that I think is really the, you know, the, the, the science and the rationale for looking at tests like rapid number naming um, as an opportunity to, uh, to, to quickly screen for concussion. We could talk about that rugby study. Yeah, I think you're referring to the study in 2009 by Hiker that was published in Brain. And those were individuals with post-concussion syndrome. So not only were they concussed, but they had post, they, they had persistent symptoms, meaning that their symptoms, you know, they, they, they weren't, uh, you know, they, they weren't part of that lucky 80% that within two weeks, essentially, they were back to normal. These were individuals that were a month or longer with persistent symptoms of concussion. And when they did this study, they relied on specific eye tracking devices in order to quantify and qualify um, the, 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 the accuracy and the, and the magnitude of saccades. And essentially, they, you know, they, they found that saccadic abnormalities were very, very common among the individuals that they studied with post-concussion syndrome uh, and, and was associated to a higher degree with symptom load as compared to what at the time was considered to be standard. And those were the neuropsych or, 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 the, or the neurocognitive barrage of, of tests for, you know, for, for traumatic brain injury. So we'll talk, let's talk about sideline testing for concussion. And let's go back to the King Devic test. Please explain how it works, what it is, and how it helps to determine if somebody has a concussion or not, and whether or not they could go back into the game. Sure. Uh, so the 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 uh, the fundamental concept of, of the King Devic test is is a concept of rapid number naming. Essentially, the ability of an individual to read a series of numbers accurately and quickly. And it, it's a it's a three card test, or it was designed as a three card test. Now it's available as a uh, you know as a as an iPad or a tablet app. But essentially, uh, the cards, the, the cards, the, the, the targets get progressively more difficult. So the first test card, there's a line that connects between the numbers. The second card, the line is gone. The third card, the line is gone. And 
and there is crowding both horizontally as well as vertically. So it becomes progressively more difficult to, if you go from, from test card A, one to two to three. But essentially, it's the total amount of time that it takes for an individual to accurately go through the test. And for normal individuals, that's going to be under one minute, well under one minute for most individuals. In the setting of concussion, what, what we found and what others have supported through similar research trials is that if you do, if you do this test of saccadic function on the sideline is that it takes a significantly longer amount of time to do the test. So um, it, it essentially, it, it, if there is any if there is any increase in the amount of time, that is considered to be an abnormal test response. Conversely, what we found is that the more often that you do the test, if you, if you do a baseline test and you, you, know, you do it repetitively, your time is going to slightly improve uh, and then it will ultimately plateau. But that's the basis of the KD test as well as similar tests of reaction is that it's all compared to a baseline. I think that's the critical thing right up front is that pretty much all, you know, all, all sideline tests for concussion are based upon some type of a baseline. And is there a degradation? Um, the nice thing about using eye movements is that it can be done quickly. It, you know, again, it takes less than a minute to do the test. Um, it can be done on the sideline, and quite frankly, you can you know you can train non-medical personnel to to do the test. There's you know, there, there's really no difference between someone who is medically trained versus non-medically trained as it as it relates to, to to getting as it relates to doing the test. Now, if you combine that with a, for instance, a test of balance. And there are several common tests that are used in sports medicine for balance. Uh, one is the balance error scoring system or the best. Uh, another, which, which I, I, think, I think may be easier to administer is a time tandem gait or a time tandem walk. Um, you know, if you, if you compare, if you, if you, if you look for saccadic abnormalities, if you look at balance abnormalities, if, if, if both of those are, are abnormal as compared to the baseline, uh, that, that correlates with uh, an over 90% likelihood that an individual has been concussed. Now, there's a, I saw a study where it was a five times risk of having a concussion if somebody fails the King Devic test, is that correct? Yes, yes, that, that's true, and, th and that's based upon. I, I know that I believe that was Dr. Galletta and his team that did that meta-analysis uh, several years ago. But yes, they looked at all literature that it didn't that had been reported, and, and what they found uh, through this meta-analysis study is that you know if you if you if essentially your your KD results are poorer than your baseline, it's associated with a five-fold risk of having sustained a concussion. Wow, that's pretty powerful. So uh, they did this test with MMA fighters and boxers, and what did they find? Yeah, that was uh, that was our initial study where we looked at an initial cohort of roughly forty individuals, and uh, about half of them were boxers and about half of them were MMA fighters. Uh, and what we did is we did baseline King Devic testing on these individuals. And then they either, you know, they, they, and they either, you know, they, they had their sparring session or they, they had their MMA event. Um, and then they, were, then they were tested immediately afterwards. And what we found, and, and in addition to that, um, there was a formal uh, testing sequence at the time we used the MACE test, which is the military's test of cognitive domain, uh, neurologic evaluation, other parameters that are used in order to make a diagnosis of concussion. You know, so that's essentially what we were comparing the, the, you know, the, the, the KD results to. And, and what, what we found was that for those individuals that were uh, concussed is that overwhelmingly uh, their KD performance was worse, either following their sparring session or following their bout. And do a lot of high school, uh, junior high school, peewee football 
uh, teams have the KD test on the sideline? Yeah, I, I believe it, you know, it certainly, it, you know, that our, our, our pilot study was in 2011. It was reported in neurology in 2011. And you know, since then, there have been other groups that have, uh, you know, that have, that have found similar results. And, and, and so, so yes, I, I know that, you know, within, within high schools, as well as uh, collegiate ranks, uh, many teams have gone to using uh, the, the KD test and uh, along with, with other biomarkers for concussion is something that can be quickly done on the sideline in order to screen for concussion. Now let's talk about other tests that could be used or that are traditionally used, uh, MRI, CT scan, PET scans. Are they helpful? Great question. <laughs> Fabulous question. Um, you know, I order a lot of MRIs for, you know, for, for patients with uh, MS or suspected of having MS. And, you know, uh, of course, stroke patients and, and the whole litany of neuroophthalmic problems. I can tell you that MRIs are uniformly worthless in the initial evaluation of an individual with concussion. So too is a CT scan. CT scans are good. Uh, to determine whether or not an individual has a skull fracture, or whether they have bled into the brain. Uh, but overwhelmingly, individuals that are concussed, they, they, they don't have skull fractures, they don't have subarachnoid, or they don't have subdural hematomas. So from that standpoint, you know, these are macroscopic studies uh, that really are a very limited value from the standpoint of looking at microscopic changes that occur within axons. Now that being said, uh, there are there, there are studies that are uh, that are that, that are helpful that you know that that that, that are you know that, that certainly can and do show abnormalities. Uh, diffusion tensor imaging. Um, uh, 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 spectroscopic evaluation uh, of the brain, looking at the, the presence of, of certain certain biomarkers or amino acids, uh, yes, is, is very very helpful. And you know, from the standpoint of uh, of determining whether or not an individual has been concussed, the the problem is that these are studies that. Uh, are not readily available, you know, particularly at a community hospital level. Um, they're also expensive. Um, so it's, you know, those are some of the challenges to these more sophisticated tests in looking at biochemical or microstructural abnormalities within the brain. Uh, but it is exciting, and, and I think that you know the research you know, certainly uh, uh, is you know has, has shown has shown positive results that way. I, I, you mentioned PET scanning. Uh, PET scanning is something that um, has been described and been discussed extensively in the context of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And I, I, I would I would sum it this way. I think that there is significant upside potential as it relates to PET scanning in ultimately being able to diagnose with a reasonable degree of certainty chronic traumatic encephalopathy within a living individual. But right now, I, I, I don't know that the science is quite there. Uh, similarly, you know, looking at blood tests for, you know, independent of CTE for concussion, um, I think that that's a, that's a very exciting field. Is it ready for prime time? I don't know that that's necessarily true now, um, but looking for the accumulation of certain biomarkers uh, within the blood of individuals who have been concussed, uh, very fascinating work that's, you know, that's been done and is certainly getting better, uh, that is showing a prevalence of certain biomarkers as opposed to others. Um, in, in, in the setting of concussion. So I, I, I do think that, you know, blood tests are, are, are very interesting. I, I think that, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, certainly there's a lot of promise. I, I, you know, as far as being ready for prime time at this point, I think there's still maybe a way to go. Are there any inflammatory markers as far as blood tests, like is the C-reactive protein elevated or any other inflammatory markers that may be elevated where they could do a, they could do a baseline 
uh, C-reactive protein and other inflammatory markers. And then you have it. And then after the game, then there's, there's a possibility. I don't know if they've ever thought about that and that, if that's ever been studied. I think that's a great question. And to be honest with you, I'm going to have to plead ignorance on that one. I, I, I don't know what the literature states as it relates to, for instance, erythrocyte sedimentation rates or C-reactive protein. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly when you, I mean, not to be comparing apples and oranges, but when we talk about the neurodegenerative changes that occur in the brain with Alzheimer's disease, you know, it's, you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there is, you know, that, that there are inflammatory mediators and that, you know, that, you know, looking, you know, you know, looking for inflammation may be, you know, maybe more effective or looking at cutting the pathology off at that point may be more effective as compared to the, the elimination of tau. But as it relates to, as it relates to, uh, or, or as it relates to amyloid, uh, but as it relates to concussion, I think that that's a, that's a fascinating, uh, uh, you know, supposition. I, I, I think uh, I, I, I'm not sure what I'm, I'm not sure what the data has to say. OCT. That's something that we commonly use, and we're looking at OCT is giving us an image at you know between eight and fifteen microns. So yeah. we possibly could see things in the nerve fiber layer. Uh, has that, Absolutely. Has that, been able to, has that been able to correlate? Because I know there's been. There's been stuff on Alzheimer's that have correlated. I know it's yeah. it's kind of a generalized, uh, uh, you can't say, well, it's definitely Alzheimer's or glaucoma, or it's not specific enough. But what have we found with OCT? I think that's very exciting. Uh, several years ago, a, a number of years ago, I, I was on a call with, uh, with Dr. McKee at Boston University, and, and she just happened to be mentioning some of the work that she was doing uh, in her CTE studies. And she said, you know, I, I started by, you know, just looking at the brains. And then I went from looking at brains to looking at brains and spinal cord, and more recently began harvesting the retina uh, among in many, among uh, these individuals, many of these individuals that had, um, you know, that had donated their brains. And she said, you know, I, I, I've been, I, I found that there is tau being deposited uh, within the ganglion cell complex of the retina. I, I believe her next statement was she goes, I'm not really sure what the ganglion cell complex is or what it does, but I got really good slides that, that shows this. And, you know, that, that, you know, that, that certainly got us thinking about, well, you know, I, I don't know if we'll be able to in vivo uh, be able to test for tau, although there are studies now that are moving in that direction within the retina. But indirectly, we may be able to look for damage vis-a-vis -vis OCTs. So yeah, we, we, we did a study where we looked at retired boxers and NFL players, and we did uh, OCTs as well as uh, doing uh, low contrast letter acuity testing. And what we found was that for those individuals, was that as compared to healthy age match controls, that there was significant thinning of both the ganglion cell complex as well as the retinal nerve fiber layers in the, in the athlete group as compared to the controls. Uh, and in addition to that, not surprisingly, there was reduced function on low contrast or you know, what, many of, what many of us think of as contrast sensitivity function. Now, one of the questions was, well, okay, but you know, could this not just be individuals that are being you know, sustaining ocular trauma? And, and you know, while, we, while we couldn't eliminate that, uh, we, did, you know, we, it, it, we did find that it was completely random as it related to nerve fiber layer and ganglion cell thinning and, uh, and, and low contrast acuity measurements uh, in comparing between the two eyes. And, and you know, our, our thought was that this may support more of a retrograde degeneration so that if the brain is being damaged, that there is this retrograde degeneration from the brain forward into the optic nerves and into the retina, perhaps, that may be responsible for these OCT abnormalities. And, and just last year, there, there was a really nice paper 
that was reported in JAMA Neurology. Uh, I know that Randy Carden was one of the authors in this study, uh, where they looked at um, where they looked at veterans, and, and they they found um, they found not only was the ganglion were, were the was the nerve fiber layer thinner in those individuals that were that were exposed to traumatic brain injury, but that their study was longitudinal. As compared to age-matched controls, they were finding that those individuals with a history of traumatic brain injury, their nerve fiber layers were thinning at a rate of about 1.2, 1.25 microns per year, which is about 10 times greater than the normal population. So yeah, I, I think that, you know, certainly, you know, from the standpoint of optometry, ophthalmology, being able to bring these instruments to, you know, into play, you know, and their and their ability to serve as perhaps a surrogate biomarker for, you know, for neurodegenerative uh, disorders. You know, perhaps CTE is one of them. You know, it's a it's a it, it, it's a fascinating topic. Have you guys looked at choroidal thinning? Because in Alzheimer's we get choroidal thinning. We have not. I, I don't know if others have. Um, I I think that I I, I think that that would certainly be worthwhile looking into uh in, particularly on a longitudinal you know protect if you could do it on a longitudinal basis among individuals with a history of traumatic brain injury or collision sport athletes let's talk about return to play that's a very important topic if you could go over that you know um historically the thought was the axiom of treating concussion is rest, both physical rest and cognitive rest. And much of that is entirely true. It, it, was, it was true 10 years ago, it's still true today. Um, you know, physical rest, certainly from the standpoint of, you know, essentially, you know, keeping, you know, not overly stimulating the brain just from the standpoint of, of, of physical stimulation. Uh, but also cognitive rest, in that as individuals are resting following a concussion, uh, yeah, you you want them to take a couple of days off, stay home, um, you know, you minimize uh, things like uh, computer games and uh, and doing a lot of texting and emailing and things like that. You, you certainly don't want to isolate individuals, lock them up in a closet because that can be deleterious as well. But modest rest, at least within the first couple of days, is still, you know, pretty much the maximum for treating individuals with concussion. And then from there, every concussion is a little bit different. It's really a matter of getting individuals back into normal activities. And by normal activities, and if we're talking about our youth, and if we're talking about individuals that are in school, that's scholastic performance. Being able to read or study for, say, 30 to 45 minutes at a time without a regression to their symptoms. The individual is their own baseline. So that's essentially how they're pro progressing through the cycle. And then from there, getting back into you know, more physical activity and, and, and so on and so, so forth. Now, an individual who's really been pushing the envelope on this is, uh, is Dr. John Letty at the University of Buffalo. Um, and uh, he has, you know, in a, in a very sophisticated manner, he's been getting individuals back into uh, physical activity, normal than is what is historically thought to be reasonable, but doing so in a very controlled setting. And, and the, the thought is that with concussion, your, your autonomic function is subnormal. And you're also in this state of reduced cortical blood flow. Uh, and that modestly bringing people back into physical activity seems to improve both autonomic function as well as cortical blood flow. So, um, you know, I don't, you know, the book has certainly not been written as it relates to, you know, you know, you know what, it, what is the secret sauce for these individuals? Everyone agrees that for a couple of days, rest is good, physical and cognitive rest. You know, but beyond that, it really is this stepwise 
approach to getting them back into the swing of things. And certainly beginning with, with study skills, reading, uh, without them reverting back to their previous symptoms of headache or blurry vision or problems like that seems to be a good thing. But, you know, one of the things that I know Dr. Letty and others have suggested as a fundamental part of the rehab approach is vision therapy. And I'll be honest with you, you know, before I got into this, before I got into concussion research, what I knew about vision therapy, you could hold in the thimble and have plenty of room left over. I know a little bit more than that, but not too terribly much more than that. But there, but there is compelling evidence to suggest that vision therapy, particularly as it relates to the three abnormalities that we talked about before, problems with accommodation, problems with convergence, problems with saccades, is that this is an easy way of getting them back into the swing of things. So, you know, for, for kids, uh, you know, our pediatric colleagues generally recommend that you give them about a month uh, to see where they're going to be after about a month. Uh, and then if, if they're still having significant binocular vision signs and symptoms, that that's a good time to begin with active vision therapy. Uh, for adults, you may be able to move forward quicker. Um, you know, no magic bullet, but two weeks seems to be a reasonable yardstick. So, you know, if they're, you know, if they're symptomatic beyond two weeks, uh, that's probably a good point to interject active therapy. So again, a, a lot of information still needs to be uh, called through research, uh, but there is that body of information that is building that active therapy, both physical therapy as well as physical, uh, vision therapy uh, seems to be helpful uh, in, in moving individuals uh, forward with concussion. The University of Cincinnati did a study that showed that kids that did vision therapy had less concussions. Are you familiar with that study? If you could go over that a little bit. I, I, I have to plead a bit of ignorance on, on that. Um, I, I do know that you know, for instance, things like convergence insufficiency or with concussion are associated with a much higher likelihood of cognitive impairment and, and, and you know, and, and as it relates to other domains. But you know, may, maybe you can fill me in. What, what, are the, what are the results of that study? So what it showed is that kids that did vision therapy had a, less, had a much less risk of getting a concussion because their eye movements are better, their combination is better, their vision, just their vision is better. And if you have better vision, you, you know, you could you have better peripheral vision, you could uh, see things from the side and you're less, at much less risk of getting hurt. Just, That's because, interesting. Your vision, just because your vision is better. Huh. And that was a study at the University of Cincinnati. Let's talk about some medications that have been used uh, for people that have concussions. Let's start off with like uh, melatonin. Have yeah. you, ha what have you heard about that? Has it been helpful? I think the problem uh, with any and all pharmacotherapy uh, studies is that, um, you know, the, the, there just isn't, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of robust information that's out there. It's not to say that there isn't merit uh, behind some of these agents. I mean, certainly melatonin as it relates to the sleep disorders. Uh, I'm not aware of any contraindication as to why it may not be. Uh, appropriate, but you know, from the standpoint of including it in in part of a protocol, um, you know, I, I I don't know that the data is necessarily there. And how about Lamictal? Have you heard about them using that for brain fog and uh, as as you know, which is a seizure seizure drug? Has yeah. that been helpful? And what's your experience with that? Again, I, to be honest with you, I really don't have uh, I, I really don't have experience or much of anything in the way of experience that way. Uh, I do know that anecdotally, uh, a, a number of anti-seizure, a number of, uh, of CNS stimulants have been suggested to show 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 promise, uh, at least for some individuals. Uh, but I think the data right now is is just a little too sketchy. I mean, if you get back to the whole you know, the pharmaco, if you, if you look at the biochemistry of concussion, um, you know, immediately there is this, this ionic imbalance where you have calcium that's rushing into the cells and you have potassium that's leaving. So you get this repetitive 
overstimulation, overpolarization, depolarization of the cells. It would stand a reason that if you were to treat individuals with concussion with a calcium channel blocker from the get-go, that that should be beneficial. Unfortunately, the early studies that looked into that were inconclusive at best. Now, the methodology of some of these studies has been questioned. Uh, there are ongoing studies now to essentially go back and re-engineer them and see if they work. Um, but I guess that's a roundabout way of saying that, yeah, I, I think that there's, there's validity from, from a scientific standpoint in pharmacotherapy for, uh, for, for the management of concussion. I just don't see a lot of overwhelming data to, you know, to essentially you know, make it part of a protocol or make it mainstream. You talk about potassium and uh, calcium, and how does that affect the mitochondria and when the mitochondria is affected in a bad way, what does that do to us? Well, calcium initially is, it rushes into the cells, stays there, and it creates this, it essentially allows for depolarization that is not allowed to readjust itself. But the other thing that calcium does is that when it's in the cell, it stimulates, it propagates the, synth the synthesis and release of these proteolytic enzymes that then begin, first of all, it ties up the mitochondria. So it makes it that much more difficult for cells to adjust themselves, to heal themselves, to get back to normal homeostasis. But the other thing that calcium does is it promulgates this release of proteolytic enzymes. And it's these proteolytic enzymes that then chew on and eat up, you know, it, degrades, it degrades this binding protein tau that we've already talked about. And as a consequence, the cells essentially dissolve themselves or they, 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 that's probably a bad term. They degenerate from the inside out. So initially there are problems with calcium as it relates to the, as it relates to the polarization or the depolarization of cells and the, in the, in the chronic phase of excitation. But then long-term there are these, there are these microstructural changes that result in a release of tau, the disruption of the microtubules and ultimately play a role in the pathology that we know as chronic traumatic encephalopathy. As we continue with treatment while people are rehabbing, have you heard about people using curcumin? Because curcumin could pass through the blood-brain barrier and decrease inflammation. You know, that's a great point because there have been good, there have been some studies looking at curcumin uh, as being neuroprotective for individuals with Alzheimer's dementia. Um, and yes, in, in particularly in vivo, it, it has been shown to bind you know, certain of these, shall we say, bad actors, um, uh, beta amyloid being one of them. So, you know, could there potentially be benefit to curcumin and other supplements? Um, I think that the answer is perhaps, but, you know, once again, it's, it, as you know, it's a, it's a long step from, you know, doing, you know, doing, doing animal studies to translating this to clinical practice, but, you know, yeah, there, there, there's a scientific basis. I know some people are using high-dose DHA, omega-3s. Yeah. Anything you could share with that? Again, the, 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 science, uh, the science suggests that there is a rationale for that. Uh, I think particularly for younger individuals, um, uh, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, does it work? Uh, you know, up front, does it, does it ameliorate the symptoms of concussion and potentially down the line, uh, could it protect against some of these more deleterious uh, 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 complications, you know, as it relates to CTE? Um, I, 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 think the, I, I think the jury's out on that. And how about a um, little bit of exercise to try to increase BDNF? Yeah, uh, I, I think getting back to what I mentioned before, you know, you look at the work that John Letty and his colleagues have done. Uh, 
I, I think, I mean, that really is the core is, is that you, you, are, you are changing potentially in a positive fashion uh, neurophysiology that could play a positive role in the, you know, in the clearing of symptoms and, and, and you know, perhaps, you know, having more far reaching, uh, far reaching attributes. So, but, but again, I, you know, I, I you know, the, the research now is, is fascinating. It's, I, I would say, it, I would say stay tuned as to seeing what's going to develop down the line. And how much sense does it make stress reduction meditation? How much does it make to somebody like in your position who's a pure scientist, but maybe there's not a lot of research on it? Yeah, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not a lot. Of, I'm not aware of a lot of fundamental research. I would say that early on, uh, from the standpoint of cognitive rest, it certainly makes a lot of sense. Um, getting back to this whole rest issue for the first several days, yes, it's physical rest, but it's also cognitive rest. And yeah, I think that biofeedback, meditation, um, you know, certainly, you know, could you know could could uh, could play a positive role and have you heard anything about hyperbaric oxygen that may be helpful yeah <laughs> not a lot you know geez hyperbaric oxygen it's you know you know if there's something wrong with the body throw hyperbaric oxygen <laughs> at it and it'll it'll probably work and i to be honest with you i just don't know enough to uh, to, to comment uh intelligently Anything about diet, any type of special diet wipes people are rehabbing? Should they be on a, a more of a keto type giant because it's more fat and the, the yeah, I, there may be something to that. And I think particularly for younger individuals, if you think about myelin and the reparative process and uh, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the fish oils and the fish, you know, fish oil supplements and the omega threes, um, you know, there's, you know, there's certainly background science, a scientific basis behind this and getting back to younger individuals and the potential role that that could play from the standpoint of, you know, repairing, you know, potentially repairing myelin. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that, yeah, I think that there, there could be value, but, you know, you know right now, I, I think it, I, I think that, uh, I, I think that it may be a little bit too early to tell. There, I, I don't see where there's a real hindrance, or you know, I, I don't, I don't see where there's a negative to it. But to be able to say that, you know, this is definitely going to help, I, I just don't know that we're there. And CBD, does that make any sense? I don't know. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> I had to ask you those questions. Yeah. So it, you know, this was a very comprehensive interview. I really thank you. Is there anything I left out that you want to tell the listeners that uh, that we 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 didn't cover? You know, Carrie, I, I really do appreciate the opportunity. I do think that we touched on all bases. I, I think the bottom line is once again getting back to this whole issue of youth sports, and that you know, as, as adults, as you know, as uh, you know, as, uh, as scientists, as, as providers, we, we do have a role within society to be thought leaders within this area. Um, and, you know, from that standpoint, to continue to push these issues forward, the, the, the best way of managing concussion is to prevent concussion. And getting back to some of our early discussion as it relates to you know, minimizing or eliminating full contact drills. So much of this has just been, it's just been folklore. It's just been legend. It's just, that's the way it's always been done. Well, you know, the science suggests that that's not necessarily a good thing and that there are much more viable alternatives to this. And then I suppose directly along, you know, tagged onto that is, okay, we don't live in bubbles. We talked a lot about football, soccer, other organized sporting activities. There are a lot of kids that suffer concussions because they're falling off their bikes or they're, you know, engaged in just normal activities. So from that standpoint, I think it is a matter of early recognition and, you know, doing what can be done in order to minimize um, the, minimize the progression of symptoms, notably, you know, you know early rest and, and a stepwise uh, return to 
more of a normal environment, both physically as well as as well as cognitively. And I guess we can't make that football helmet big enough because there's different forms of concussion with rotational and you know being hit from the side and your, your head being turned and it's not just you know head on. No, that that that's a, that's an excellent point. And remember, particularly in kids, I mean, you know, you had a big helmet on that little head, you know, with a rather underdeveloped you know, sternocleidomastoid muscle, you're just adding to that level of imbalance and the, the inability to really keep the head in a stabilized position. And many of many of the concussions in kids are not coup contra coup. They're the whiplash injuries. So if someone wants to find out more about you, uh, Dr. Len Mesner, who's an amazing expert on this topic, or more about the Illinois College of Optometry, how can they do that? Uh, certainly, the easiest thing to do is to send me an email um, at lmessner at ico.edu, and um, you know I'm I'm happy to uh, I'm ha I'm happy to respond and and, and build new friendships. Uh, I would say that an excellent resource um, uh, for anyone who is interested in learning more about concussion is to go to the website of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Um, CLF has, you know, they has just put, done incredible work over the years, uh, both in the areas of research in concussion. Uh, as well as community outreach, educational programs, and really changing public policy as it relates to, you know, things like eliminating full contact drills from practice and, and things like that. So the, you know, so the, concu so the uh, Concussion Legacy Foundation website is, a, is, a, is an excellent resource. Dr. Mesler, I want to thank you for joining me today. You're a wealth of information. You are a leader in concussion. And I really want to thank you. And I want to thank you for joining me today on Open Your Eyes. I'm wishing everybody good health. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.